0: I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to ask us um, really um, kind of an a opener, fun, icebreaker uh, way to start out tonight uh, for chapter 7. And so if you would bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Um, Lord, we come to you tonight, and we just thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for uh, this opportunity, Lord, that we get to have every single week to come together Uh, To learn your word, to to grow deeper, to find application on how um, our life can change and resemble more of you. And so, Lord, I'm asking that as we uh, begin to walk into uh, chapter 7 tonight of the book of Romans, that you would give us clarity as we walk through this, uh, that you would um, give us um, portions of scripture that can be used uh, to change our perspective of sin, our perspective on life change, Uh, our perspective on living the Christian life, and Lord, help us to glorify you through the things that we learn and that we would not sit or stand idly by uh, after hearing this truth, but that we would want to walk uh, in it and live differently. And so, Lord, empower us uh, through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Um, I have a question to start out tonight. More uh, of really like Um, will you will you share something and I'm not looking for every single person to share uh, tonight but is there anyone in here who is willing to tell about a time uh, when you were younger and your parents told you specifically not to do something and you did it anyways your parents told you not to do something and you did it anyways is anyone willing to share what that was yeah go ahead Melinda okay okay so your mom said not to go in the deep end of the pool when you were three years old and you did anyways and so you got caught i'm glad right you didn't drown you're still alive that's a good thing okay um what else anybody else got anything yeah go ahead That's awesome. Anybody else? Something your parents told you not to do and you did it anyways. And did you get caught? Did you get caught? All right, I'll share a story and then we'll dive in. Uh, A personal story. So um, you guys know my mom and dad. They attend church here and they're not here tonight so I can share the story. <clears throat> so um, I was younger uh, We lived in uh, Belding, Michigan uh, when, I was, when I was pretty little And uh, my dad was a reserve uh, cop there in town And he knew everyone on the police department um, And so uh, being in our family You couldn't get away with anything uh, Because everybody knew uh, my mom and dad Um, And I remember one specific time, uh, we lived in town, um, and so we had cars that drive by our house every single day, all the time, cars would drive by. And on the one side, there was no stop sign, and so the cars would just completely drive straight through. And my parents always told us, um, I I was a kid who loved baseball, and so I used to throw things around all the time. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And my parents uh, said, don't ever throw something at a vehicle. Never. Um, and I was typically the one who followed the rules. Um, I didn't break the rules. I like rules, um, they bring structure to my life. Um, and I remember one time there was a vehicle that kept driving by our house, and there were some rocks along uh, the flower bed on the outside of our home. And for whatever reason, I thought it was a really great idea to throw a, wa- a rock at a car when it was driving by and the car goes by and i hurled that rock and i was like yes i'm gonna miss it and it hit the back window and it just shattered completely shattered and the guy slammed on his brakes and i remember turning and like dead sprint into our privacy fence in backyard and got in the house and got as quickly as i can to my bedroom and the next thing you know there's someone pounding on the front door of our house and and lo and behold, it's the guy in this car. And um, so I did get caught. I did get caught. Uh, but initially, I will tell you that my mom did not believe the guy. Um, he was like, M- your son threw a rock in my car. My mom's like, no, you're, you've got the wrong house. Uh, you've got the wrong house. And uh, lesson learned, lesson learned, don't throw, uh, don't throw something um, at car windows because they break. Um, I did the complete opposite uh, of what... Uh, my mom and dad had always taught us to do. So now I'm going to ask a question that's not going to come to the screen, but really one for us to think about. How often in your life since becoming a believer did you do the opposite of what God's word told you to do? Don't incriminate yourself, okay? Don't raise your hand. I don't, I don't care to know, Uh, But how many times in your life have you done the opposite of what God's Word said for you to do? So tonight we're going to talk about how the law had authority only over the living, uh, but being dead with Christ, our old man is then dead to the law. There was no way for it to save us. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I'm excited tonight But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, I want to just stop right here. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul told us that we are not under law, but under grace. So after this lengthy discussion in chapter 6 uh, regarding the practical implications of that very thought, that we are under grace and not under law, now Paul's going to begin to explain in much greater detail for us how that we are no longer under the dominion of the law. Now, the ancient Greek word um, here for these first three verses, I need you guys to, to notice or understand something. Most English versions uh, of these three verses have the phrase, the law. It is uh, the law, or there's no dominion of the law. But in the original Greek wording, there was no word for the None whatsoever before law. So it just said law. And the reason why it was written that way in the original Greek was because there was a broader principle to the term law than just what was written in the Old Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the law that had dominion over man included the law of Moses, meaning that it included the Old Testament, but it had a broader principle in what was being communicated. So it also was the law of creation and the law of conscience, meaning that because God created and because God gave man a conscience, those were also aspects. So when the law was stated, those were also believed to have dominion over the man, creation. And I don't mean dominion as in they had control over the man. I mean dominion as in they were a part of the law when the man was alive. Now, Paul makes the point that death ends all obligations and contracts. Now, if you would turn, or look with me now at verse number four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, in Romans chapter six, Paul explained that we died with Jesus meaning our old man died, but that we rose also with him, although Paul there only spoke of our death to sin, okay? Now, he explains that we also died to the law. Being buried with Christ, we are now dead to the law because we are under grace. Now, some might think, yes, we were saved by grace, but we must live by the law in order to please God. But Paul is saying the opposite of that. Paul is saying, and it's very plain, that believers are dead to the law as far as it represents a principle of living or a place of right standing before God. I mean, however, we're not free from the law so that we can live unto ourselves. You guys tracking with me so far? We're not free from the law that we can live unto ourselves. We are free so that we can be, what I'm going to use this term, maybe loosely, but Uh, We are free so that we can be married to Jesus. So that we can bear the fruit of God. And we're married to Jesus. Now look though at number five because he begins to tell us the problem of the law. He says that for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, under the law... We didn't bear fruit for God. Instead, we bore fruit uh, to death because the law aroused the passions of sin within every single one of us. Now, Paul is going to explain to us in, in just a moment the problem of the law more fully in probably the next seven verses or maybe eight verses. But now we see his point that we can only come fully to the place of bearing fruit for God when we're free from the law. I'm going to explain, hopefully explain this in a little greater detail in just a moment. But look at verse number six. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul is now beginning to summarize the theme of this chapter. That we're dead to not just our old man, but we're also dead to the law. Now because we died, our old man died with Jesus at Calvary, we're dead to the law and we're delivered from its dominion over us as a principle, and now this is the part we can't miss, it is a principle, we're, we're dead to the dominion of the law as a principle of justification or sanctification. And what I mean by that is that the law, if you guys remember from two weeks ago when we met, the law showed us where we were wrong in the standing of god but it could never rescue or save us and so now we're dead meaning it is dead to the dominion over us it has no power over us in the justification or the sanctification process okay so the law does not justify meaning that it doesn't make us right with god and the law doesn't sanctify us meaning that it does not take us deeper in our relationship with God or make us holy before him. So our freedom as believers is not given so that we can stop serving God, but that we can serve him better. And we can, we can serve God in our capacity better under, and listen to this, under the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter or of the law. So I have a question for you. Um, how many would raise your hand and say, I've been a Christian longer than five years? Okay, for, the most, for most hands. Okay, um, how about longer than three years? I've been a Christian longer than three years. Okay, so in that, let me ask you this question. Right, So we we know from Scripture that the the old man has passed away according to 2 Corinthians 5. The old has passed away and all things have become new. We know that from the beginning of salvation in the, the life of a believer we're given what by God? We are given new life but there's something that is given to us as a comforter, as a guide. What is that? The Holy Spirit. Right, the Holy Spirit. So how well... How well do you, as and this is a rhetorical question, but I want you to write it down and think about it. How well do you serve in the newness of the Spirit? How well do you serve God in the newness of the Spirit? You know, it's a shame, um, in my opinion, that many serve sin and many serve legalism with more devotion than they serve God. God, out of the newness of the Spirit. It's unfortunate when, in the legalistic side of things, fear motivates us more than love does. Fear motivates us more than love does. Our problem is that God's law is perfect, but Paul asks then, is the law equal to sin? Is the law equal to sin? So look at verse number 7. What then shall I say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have been known uh, what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." So Paul is saying uh, by following this very train of thought that we can understand how someone might infer that the the, the law is sin, but in, instead Paul insists that we must die to the law if we're going to bear fruit of God. Now, someone must think, surely there is something wrong then with the law. I mean, it's a valid question to ask. Is there something wrong with the law if we must die to it, if it's not going to help us bear fruit? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. The law is good because it reveals sin to us. Think about it like this. The law is like an x-ray machine, okay? It reveals what is in the hidden places. It reveals the things that the naked eye cannot see. Now, you can't blame the x-ray for what it exposes, can you? No, it's just doing its job. And so Paul says, for I would not have known not to covet or covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. And so the law... Ah, How many of you like speed limit signs? How many of you would rather speed limit signs go away and you could drive however fast you want? Listen, all for honesty in church, we all know you all want to drive like heathens. No? Right. So the law in the Bible is what sets the speed limit for the believer. That's the speed limit. It, it, it says we know exactly when we're going too fast or too slow. The speed limit in the Bible is the law. Now, we might never know that we're sinning in many areas, such as covetousness, like Paul talked about, if the law didn't show us specifically where we sin. We might not know it. And so look at, eight, look at verse number 8, because sin corrupts the commandment. So listen to this. It says that, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead. So Paul describes this this dynamic where the the warning don't do that may become a call to action because of our sinful rebellious hearts. It's almost to say it's not the fault of the commandment but it's the fault of the sinner is really what Paul is saying. And so um, how many of you in here know who St. Augustine is? Augustine? Okay. You don't have to know a bunch of things about him, but Augustine was uh, one of the early church fathers. Uh, he's a, a theologian um, that, that came... Um, nearly around the same time as Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wycliffe and John Huss. Um, So all of these men were like 13, 1400s, 1500s, right in there. All of these men were great theologians of the Bible. And um, Augustine wrote a book called The Confessions of the Great Theologian. And in this book, He begins to describe uh, that very thought of Paul and how it worked out in his life as a young man. And he goes on to talk about how he lived um, on a a vineyard when he was a, a teenager. And how in the back of the vineyard there were these pear trees that had these beautiful lush pears on them. And he said that his parents used to tell him not to pick those pears uh, because they were going to be used to either make wine or food that would then be sold um, so their mom and dad could have money. He used to sneak out at night with his friends and he used to go run through the vineyard to those pear trees and he said that they would pick what they called the forbidden fruit and they would take loads and loads and loads of this fruit off of the trees on purpose But he goes on to write in the story that he didn't pick the fruit for himself and his friends to consume. He picked it so they could throw it to their pigs. He was wasting it. And he said that every single beautiful pear that I picked was like picking the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. But then he goes on to say that it was not the pear that my wretched soul coveted, because I had better pears in my mom's kitchen. But he said, the only feast I got was the feast of iniquity and I enjoyed it to the fullest because I became a thief. Because I became a thief. He said, was it the pleasure of acting against the law? Was it the fact that I loved that I was stealing because I was told not to? The desire to steal he says, awaken simply in me because there was a, a prohibition to stealing. I was told not to steal. And so it awoken in me to steal fruit that I didn't have to steal. And then I, I began to think as I was reading uh, th- this book, The Confessions. My, m- my wife got it for me for Christmas this, this last year. And as I was reading that, I began to think about here in America. So look, let's bring it several hundred years now later. Well, what about prohibition of alcohol here in America? It's not that far ago that that was a thing here in our own country. The Prohibition Act didn't prevent people from drinking alcohol. In fact, in many ways, it made drinking alcohol more attractive to people here in our country. And there was a, a desire for the people here to break the boundaries that were set by our laws. Well, why? Well, because of the sin nature in man. Once God drew a boundary for us with his truth, we are immediately enticed to cross that boundary. That's no fault of God's. It's no fault of the boundary. It's the fault of the sinfulness of of man. Sin, Paul said, takes every opportunity against the commandment. And so the weakness of the law isn't in the law, it's in us. It's in the man. Our hearts are so wicked that they can find opportunity for all manner of evil desire from something good like the law of God. When we when we lived in um in florida we were one of the largest or we had one of the largest tourist destinations uh probably 30 minutes south of where we lived uh clearwater beach was ranked uh, within the top two or three beaches in the country uh for not only uh, cleanliness uh, but for tourist attraction and and um there are so many waterfront hotels in Clearwater. Um, you, can, you can get a hotel and on the whole um, west side is just beautiful white sandy beachfront. And it's absolutely amazing uh, when you're down there. And in, in uh, some of these hotels, um, there were, they were concerned that people would try to fish from the balcony of their hotel into the water because the hotel was that close. And so the balconies uh, began to appear with signs that said no fishing from the balcony. And as soon as they put the signs up, they had a constant problem in which they had to begin removing people from their hotel rooms because they were fishing from the balcony there with lines, with sinkers. They had windows break in in floors below them. I mean, it was like... It, to be honest with you, it was the craziest thing when you turn on the news and the breaking news story is how hotels are angry because people are fishing from their balconies. Um, and they go on to share about how they had put these signs up. Well, finally, they prob- the problem was solved when someone from the company had this brilliant idea, take the signs down, take all the signs down. They removed the signs and the hotel uh, owner comes back and said that they never had a problem with people fishing from the balcony after all of the signs were removed. Strange, right? Not really. Because of the fallen nature uh, of man, the law can actually work like an invitation to sin. And that's just the nature of how we are wired, and it shows us how great the evil of sin truly is. Like, it can take something good and holy, and the law can twist it and promote evil through the eyes of man. And so sin warps love into lust an honest desire to provide for one's family could get turned into greed really quickly and the law into a promoter of sin when that was not truly why it was given to us and so look at verse numbers uh, number nine Because Paul begins to state the innocence uh, before he knew the law. So look at what he says. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Like children can be innocent before they know or understand what the law requires. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says, I was once alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Like sin swept in. And so when, when we do come to know the law of God, the law shows us our guilt, but it excites rebellion inside of us and it brings forth more sin, which then leads to death. And so sin corrupts the law and defeats its purpose of giving life. And once the law is corrupted by sin, then, then death comes I am going to share with us this coming Sunday in our series on um, the book of James. Uh, we're going to be in the next several verses in chapter 1. And we're going to be talking about how we grow in our response to temptation. And there is a verse, I believe, that James speaks so beautifully when he says that when when sin has been conceived, it gives birth, right? It, the, the temptation brings forth, it gives birth to the sinfulness, and that sinfulness leads to death in the heart of man. And I believe James captured exactly what Paul was attempting to explain here. So look at verse number 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. And so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and, the right, and it's righteous and good. So sin does this by deception. It deceives us. Sin deceives us because it falsely promises satisfaction. Would you guys agree with that? Sin falsely promises satisfaction. It also deceives us because sin claims an adequate excuse to sin. It gives us the excuse to do what we're doing. But it also deceives us because it promises an escape from punishment, which is never true. Yeah, go ahead. You that, so
1: it's
0: not yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree Well, I'd have a lot of questions for the individual that said that, but, um, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So, um, there's a, there's a portion of scripture in the book of Corinthians. Paul, Paul talks to the Corinthian church and, uh, he's really talking before he goes into marriage and he says, um, that everything is permissible, but not everything is good. Um, and he wasn't saying that every single thing in the world is allowed. Uh, what he was saying is that if there's something that's not clearly laid out in Scripture, uh, as, as like I'm talking black and white uh, laid out, um, if it's a gray area, it may be permissible, but that doesn't mean that you should do it. So I'm going to just throw this out there, and I'm not, please, this is not to be offensive to anybody at all, uh, but I'm going to throw this out there because this is is a topic uh, that would fall into that category. So the Bible does not explicitly state that you shall never, ever have a drink of alcohol. It doesn't explicitly state that, okay? Now, the Bible does tell us not to be drunk with wine, okay? Okay. and multiple things that I, I, will, I want to share and could share on that topic. First of all, the alcohol they had in the Bible is nowhere near the alcohol that we have today in our culture. So uh, don't, please don't say, well, they, they drank in the Bible. Jesus turned water into wine. Yes, he did. But the wine they had was not the alcohol that we have today. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is because the Bible doesn't explicitly state, do not do this or else, okay, um, it would be a, a something that's permissible so drinking or having a drink of alcohol is would be permissible but it's not beneficial why because alcohol taints the the mind from its normal controlled state the bible tells us to be under the control of the holy spirit if we have altered if we've altered in any way. So you're talking now drugs in any capacity. Like I had someone just reach out to me the other day and say, well, marijuana is legal in Michigan. So is it a law if I'm not breaking, or like, is, is it against the law of God if I'm not breaking the law of man? So I responded with, are you still 100% in your right physical mind when you do it? And the answer was no I said so are you then being led by the Holy Spirit they said no so I said okay so then what's the answer to is it still beneficial anyways same thing with alcohol so it right Paul said it it may be permissible but doesn't mean that it's good or beneficial and so that's I would then that's where I would take that conversation most likely but anybody else have anything they would like to add yeah go ahead Sure, we went and I liked
2: the taste of that dark Guinness, and I thought, I think I would like Guinness.
0: And I felt a shock, huh? Not to, you know, and I thought, you know, then you go to your head. Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And be about to look at else. yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And we're going to cover some of the things that that Kim was just mentioning um when we get to like chapter 14, 13, 14 of, of Romans, uh, when we we're gonna talk about, give me just a second and I'll call on you. When we talk about, you know, not allowing ourselves to be a stumbling block for other people. Um, and then you get to number 15 of Romans and um, Paul starts out by saying uh, that, that we as Christians are to bear with those of a weaker faith meaning that you're not better with them because you're bearing with them. Uh, it means that they're not as far along as, as you are in your walk, and that's okay. We should do everything to display those Christ-like characteristics to them. And so I thank you very much for bringing that up. So yeah, go ahead. one of the things I is, something that I would be if somebody from church saw me doing? Sure. That is a very, very good thought. Did you guys hear? all hear what she said? If it's something that she would be embarrassed if someone at church found out or saw, then it's probably not a good idea to do it. Now, yeah, go ahead, Absolutely. sure yes and paul yes you're right i mean paul paul stated it is my sin that deceives me into believing it's okay my sin It not the law that deceived the man into into doing it. it is the sin that used the law on an occasion for rebellion Hey, do this, rebel against it. That's why Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you what? Free. Free. The the truth makes the the man or the woman, the teenager, free from the deception of sin. Now sin, when followed, it leads to death, not life. And so one of Satan's greatest deceptions is to get the, the Christian to think of sin as something good uh, that, that an unpleasant God wants to deprive us of. And now when God warned, uh, warns the man, right, the, the believer away from sin, he's warning us away from something that wants to kill us. Spiritually, it wants to kill you and kill me and Paul understands how someone might take him as as saying that he is against the law but he's really not saying that at all in fact it's true that we must die to sin Romans 6 2 said that but we must also die to the law Romans 7 4 said that but that should not be taken to mean that Paul believes that sin and law are in the same basket because they're not the problem is in us not in the law And so sin corrupts the work or the effect of the law, so we must die to both of them. So look now, though, at verse number 13, because this is important and crucial for us. It says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so the law provoked our sin nature, and this can be used for good because it's more dramatically exposes our deep sinfulness. So after all, if sin um, can use something as good as the law to its advantage in promoting evil, it shows how evil sin is. Really, in our life, yeah. Yeah. I love that. We need sin to appear sin because it always wants to hide in us and conceal its true depths and its true strength. And the law is the instrument in the hands of a faithful minister to alarm and to awaken sinners. And so sin becomes more sinful in light of the law in two ways. Why? Because first sin becomes exceedingly sinful because it is in contrast to the law. And then it becomes exceedingly sinful because the law provokes an evil nature. And so instead of being a a dynamo that would bring power to overcome the law, it is a magnet that draws out of us all kinds of sin and corruption. And so uh, Paul begins to talk about how the spiritual law cannot restrain the carnal man. And so look at verse number 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul recognized that um, the spiritual law could not help the carnal or the fleshly man. Now, I want, I want you to, does anyone else uh, have a version that doesn't use the word carnal? Uh, Fourteen. Okay, okay, that's fine. Ooh, okay, okay. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Does it say flesh in your Bibles there? But I am, okay, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Oh, okay, similar to that, okay, similar, okay. Now, that word, that word carnal or flesh there um, in the original Greek comes from the Greek word sarkikos, okay, it's gonna be on the screen for you, is where we get our English word carnal, but meaning characterized by the flesh, characterized by the flesh. So in this context here, this specific verse it speaks of the person who can and should do differently but does not. He can and should but does not do differently. Yeah. Okay, I remember a person you, I'm a Oh. Can <laughs> you Okay, did, did you guys all hear what he said? He said he had someone tell him one time that they are a carnal Christian. And he asked, what, uh, what would, how would you explain a carnal Christian? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? What is a carnal Christian? Yeah, Kim, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Which it is. I mean, you're totally right. Car- carnal Christian is an oxymoron. Um, yeah. yeah, Paul. Paul was saying here uh, that he sees the carnality within himself, but he knows that the law, though it's spiritual, it has no answer to his carnal nature. Meaning that at this moment he's saying that I can be in bondage under sin and the law will not be able to help me in any way, shape, or form. He's like a, a man who's been arrested for a crime and thrown into jail and the law will only help him if he's innocent. But Paul knows that he's guilty and he's, ex- he's explaining the sinful nature inside of man and he's saying the law is arguing against me, not for me, and even though Paul says that he is carnal, it doesn't mean that he is not a Christian. And so I'm gonna hopefully um, hopefully um, answer this in the next couple of verses. It was Martin Luther who made the statement that it is the proof of the spiritual and wise man that he knows that he is carnal, but that he is displeased with himself in that carnality. And indeed, he hates himself, and he praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish and carnal man is that he regards himself as spiritual and he is pleased with himself. And Paul, or Martin Luther was, was saying, if you're a believer and you're a spiritual believer, you're going to see the sin nature within you and you're own, you're going to own it. But disown it at the same time. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm dirty and rotten and filthy. Right. Remember what I said several weeks ago? Like I'm a dirt bag. My wife and I said we're dirt bags for Jesus Christ, right? But we know that Christ in us has saved us from that dirt bag mentality. Has saved us from making those dirt bag decisions, right? And so there's this struggle then with. And please, if you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. The believer doesn't struggle with sin. We struggle with obedience. We struggle with obedience. And so the struggle of obedience, oftentimes, the reason we fail is because we're trying to do it in our own strength. I'm trying to do it with me and me alone. So look now at the next couple of verses and see see what he says. So in verse 15, and this is the part that everyone's like, wait, what did he just say? For I do not understand my own actions. Anybody ever been in that place before? I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law or with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Please don't forget that. As a Christian, the new man in you has the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul is saying, I have the desire, but I can't carry it out on my own. So look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And so Paul is expressing that the problem isn't a lack of desire, I mean, we want to do what is right. The problem isn't knowledge. Like, we know what is the right thing. The problem is a lack of power, is a lack of power. Paul is saying that we lack power because the law gives us no power, but it gives us no power for keeping the law. The law says here are the rules and you better keep them, but we can't keep them. Paul said, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So is Paul denying his responsibility as a sinner? No, not at all. In fact, he's recognizing that as he sins, he's acting against his nature as a new man in Christ. He, he's saying that a Christian must own up to his sin, right, yet realize that the impulse to sin does not come from who you really are in Christ any longer. Why? Well, because to be saved from sin, a man must at the same time own it, like I said, but also disown it, disown his own sin. And, and this is what, in, in my opinion, is what I would call a practical paradox, a practical paradox it is reflected in this these very verse, these five verses right here a christian must own his sin but disown it at the same time yeah go ahead kelly so the answer to your nature is to own it and disown it yes I w- that is a that is a perfect perfect sen- simple simplified sentence and, and and i would even maybe go as far as to say um, we have to oftentimes recognize, um, let me, I, I'll use myself as an example um, in, this, in this sense. When I first went, uh, when I first went to um, a pastor a friend of mine and, um, and told him that I was struggling with pornography, the very first time, um, yes, I felt like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders because nearly 11 or 12 years of hiding something was now shared with another person for the very first time. My wife didn't know, my parents didn't know, my, my best friends that I grew up with didn't know, and uh, some of you actually know who he is, um, but I, I developed, very quickly developed um, a, a very close bond and friendship uh, with the former worship pastor down at what is now called Restore. His name's Jared Gregory. Jared is a pastor um, actually on their way out to Utah to plant a church. They're supposed to be uh, landing where they're at in the next week or two. And they were just here recently. Uh, we had dinner with them. They were here visiting. And uh, we were having a conversation about this very thing. And I remember going to him, and I remember telling him for the very first time Um, that I struggled with pornography and it was something that had been going on for 12 years. My wife didn't know, my family didn't know, but it really skewed the way that I had perceived marriage. It really skewed the way that I looked at and valued women or really devalued uh, women. And um, I remember that... When I first started my journey to uh, recovery through Christ, I remember that oftentimes in the initial uh, several months or even first year and a half to two years, I oftentimes thought, hey, it's been a month or two, I'm fine. So then I would stop reading my Bible as fervently and I would stop praying as fervently and though I was still serving in church and I was still going to church, I wasn't as engaged in the service. I wasn't, I wasn't taking you know, copious amounts of notes. Right? I wasn't engaged in my Bible study the way that I was. Prior. Well, what happened? Well, a couple of weeks go by and then boom, I'm back doing the exact same thing. And then I would be like, oh, okay, I, I'm fine. And now I dive right back in and I would go back to Jared and, and he would be like, so how's it going, Josh? And I would be like, well, listen, I really messed up. And, you know, I did this and, and I was like, but, you know, I prayed and, and I asked God to please forgive me. And I've been reading my Bible and he's, well, how's it going now? Well, well things are moving this in, in this direction. And then guess what? A couple of months down the road, I would be right back in that same boat. And it was almost like I forgot that I needed the gospel every moment of every day. I forgot that I needed the power of God in my life every single moment of every single day. So now I want to then make this statement. So this coming Christmas Eve, so December 24th of this coming year, will be seven years uh, that I have been pornography free. But I want to tell you something amazing right God's grace and mercy in my life is but I have to tell you something I still to this day have accountability on my phone and on my laptop and on my computers here at the church I still have someone that I talk to on a weekly basis why I'm not doing those things anymore, but why do I still have those accountabilities in place? Why do I still have that discipleship? Why do I still have the investment from someone further along than I? Because I know the sinful nature inside of me. Right. What did did God say to Cain after Cain killed? Sin is crouching at your door so it doesn't matter where you fall right so then this is so kelly this is what i wanted i wanted to make sure right we need to make sure that yes um we need to own our sinfulness while we're disowning our sinfulness um but we also have to constantly remember our need for the gospel um yeah go ahead But anyway,
1: the the, uh, similar personal story was in college where every couple of weeks I would go and talk with this one gentleman and ask him, what happens if you don't study? And his response each time was, you fail. That's
0: a good thought. If you didn't hear him, in college, he asked uh, a fellow classmate, if you don't study, what happens? If you don't study, you fail. If you don't study, you fail. So there, there is then in, in that, right, in the process of owning and disowning our sinfulness, there then becomes a struggle between the two men. Yeah, go ahead. And for those of you who are wondering why she asked if he was reading the book of James, because that was the challenge that your um, loving pastor gave to you as we kicked off the series to read through the book of James in one sitting once a week while we're doing the series in the hopes that we would master its content and find as many ways uh, that we can apply it to our Christian life. No, but you're going to tell me. You read all 3 of them? Wow. No. Oh. Read <laughs> Sorry. Shame on the pastor for asking you to read. Shame on that pastor. So look with me now at verse number 20. Um And he says, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's what we were just talking about. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, anybody... Um, who has tried to do good is aware of that very struggle that Paul was just speaking. You know, you never know how hard it is to stop sinning until you've tried to stop sinning. Uh, Favorite author C.S. Lewis once said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. Um, Paul, Paul knows that the real inward man delights in the law of God. He knows because he's been changed. He understands that the impulse towards sin comes from another law inside of his members. And so the old, and listen to this church because um, this really truly will help you. Um, Especially if you struggle, if you struggle with like why do I keep doing the things that I hate? Why do I keep doing them? The old man is not the real Paul, because the old man is dead. And the flesh is not the real Paul, because the flesh is destined to die. But the new man, the new man is the real Paul, and Paul is now challenged to live like the God inside of him. And so your old man has been long dead and gone, right? Second Corinthians five seventeen. The old has passed away; all things become new. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, that's a great, great thought. Working out your—we are told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as we begin to work out our salvation, we begin to realize and then recognize what God says about you as a believer. And when you begin to cling to those truths and allow those truths to be on your thoughts and allow the word of God to then change your perception of truth, your actions then follow that. It follows that behavior. Biblical Counseling 101, change your thinking change your actions biblical counseling 101 if your thinking is changed your actions will always follow will always so have you guys ever heard uh, what you put in is what you get out right you ever had a mom or a grandma or a teacher tell you that right someone in your someone in your church circle to, right so that's exactly what jesus said when he said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks uh, same thing that Solomon said that as a man thinks in his heart so he is so whatever I'm feeding whatever I'm feeding is what's eventually going to come out of me so if I'm feeding my flesh feeding my sinful lusts and my desires well what do you think is going to come out of you fairies and, and rainbows and butterflies no probably not I, I mean just what, trying to make as lighthearted about a very serious topic because it can be heavy I understand that I know Uh, In fact, I had a men's group, um, a discipleship group that I just launched, and uh, there's a group of guys, and we were having some of these very discussions last night uh, with this group of guys, and and that like, what do you do when you feel like your sin nature is right there? Um, And uh, like every every term, what what do you do? Well, this is the very thing. Uh, We know that there is this battle, and in fact, Um, This portion of scripture here, uh, these last couple of verses of this chapter, is probably one of the largest um, debates um, among churches today uh, in the context of whether or not Paul uh, was a Christian or he was not a Christian when he was writing this. Um, Or when he wrote what he was experiencing. Now some look at his struggle with sin and then they believe that it must have been before he was born again. Um, and this is, I mean, it makes you almost chuckle a little bit because now I, I, have, to, I have to explain something to you. So um, I've talked a little little bit several, several weeks ago about Calvinism. Um, some questions came up about Calvinism. Well, on the opposite side of the spectrum from Calvinism is uh, another stance, a theological stance called Arminianism. Okay, Now, um, if you've done any reading about the Wesleyan Church at all, for those of you who do not know, we, we are a Wesleyan Church. <laughs> we, we are a part of the denomination called the Church of Holiness. Um, if you've read anything about the Wesleyan Church, um, the Wesleyan Church has uh, a leaning towards Arminianism. Now, that word seems really scary a lot of times to people, um, but if you know anything about Calvinism think Arminian is the opposite of everything Calvinism. Okay, now before I go any further, I just have to tell you in Arminianism they have a belief now our church does not believe this okay, Arminianists like really far leaning Arminianists believe um, that you can reach a state of perfection while here on this earth. Meaning that they believe that you can get to a place where you no longer sin before you die, okay? Our church doesn't believe that, just so you know. Um, those of you listening online or who will listen online, um, our church believes that you will be a sinner until you are dead and you are standing in the presence of God. Um, but, um, the, those who believe uh, that he is still a sinner, not saved by grace, would take the stance. So the far-leaning Arminianists would believe that he was still a sinner when he wrote this because they believed that, that at the end of Paul's life, he was no longer a sinner. And that's what they would, that they would eventually teach that um, as, as they're walking through the books or the epistles in which uh, Paul wrote. Now, the other side of that believe that he's just a Christian struggling with his sinfulness which is exactly what we see here now in a sense um it's in my opinion almost an irrelevant question uh for for the struggle of anyone who tries to obey god in their own strength is probably going to end up in that place uh where we fail did you have something yeah go ahead yes, evil is close behind I think, I think the only, the one thing I would maybe add to that is, so the believer, uh, the one who has been truly saved may at some point in their life experience this, the, the struggle or even a temporary defeat um, in different areas of your life, but I, I want to contrast that with the non-believer. The non-believer will always and only experience struggle and defeat. Only. Why? Well, because they will never see victory in their sin battle because they don't have Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit at work uh, with inside of them. And in fact, the one point of this very passage is that it describes a man who's trying to be good and holy by his own efforts, but every single time he is beaten back by the power of indwelling sin inside of us. And so it's it's referring to, uh, to anyone regenerate or unregenerate, meaning the believer or the non-believer, if we do anything in our own strength. And so I, that's why I, I wanted to come back to what you were saying. Hey, evil lies close behind, or it lays close behind. Um, and well, why is that? Well, we're never ever going to be in this world away from something that's, that's imperfect. Things are imperfect here because of our sin nature, Uh, because we live in a fallen world, and, and evil or sin will always be close behind when we're here on this earth, and if we attempt to do anything at all away from the power of the gospel, we're always gonna fall. We're always gonna do what is wrong. Well, why? Why is that? If we do it in our own strength, why will we always fail? I'm sorry? Because we can't succeed in ourselves. Yes, because we can't, su- we can't succeed without the power of the Holy Spirit when, with inside of us. And so that's why Paul says at the very end of this chapter, there's only victory in Jesus Christ. So look with me now at verse 24. And let's try to wrap this up um, and, and get out of here. Verse 24, it says, Wretched man that I am. I love that Paul says this wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the body of death now I want to stop right there because that word wretched comes from the Greek word teleporos means and this is so crazy it means one who is miserably exhausted due to hard labor miserably, miserably exhausted due to hard labor so Paul is saying at the end of this chapter I'm completely worn out because of my unsuccessful efforts to please God under the principle of the law. Now, it's worth bearing in mind um, for us tonight that the the great saints uh, of the Bible, the the great saints that I've encountered in in my life uh, through the ages, do not commonly say, look how good I am. It's been very rare that I have heard uh, a, a very uh, one, a humble, um, a humble saint, one that has been um, so radically transformed by God, um, say, "Look, look at, look at me, look at how good I am." Um, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, "The the true saint is apt to bewail his sinfulness." He's the one that's constantly saying uh i am i'm the sinner i'm the one right here uh there was a, a man um a pastor that was a good friend of mine who was in youth ministry for a very long time um lives in georgia um chatsworth georgia which is in the northwest corner and um he used to say all the time and, and, and in fact uh, I've heard him say this at probably 30 or 40 times in hearing him preach, but he always used to start out his sermons by saying that he's a recovering people pleaser. And when I, the very first time I heard him say it, I was like, why would you even want to take ownership of that? Like, Why would you even do that? Well, for that reason right there, I asked him the, that night after he got done speaking, um, and um, I was like, why... Why did you start out by telling us uh, you're a recovering people pleaser? And he said, I do it so that I'm constantly reminded of the sinful man that's inside of me. And he said it in the most humble of ways. And um, he goes on years later, um, and I ran into him at a conference, and I was asking how his life was going. And he's like, Well, I'm actually, they asked me to come in and speak. Um, at this pastor's conference, and I was like, oh, wow, Um, this is so cool. Like, I know the main speaker. Um, And so he gets up there, and it had been several years since I had been face-to-face. We'd been on Facebook, uh, talked back and forth. He gets up on stage, and he's talking about this very portion of Scripture. And he gets up, um, and his title was something about spiritual warfare, And so my initial thought was, well, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, and I know where he's going to go, and this is going to be awesome. And he goes, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he starts out by saying, "Um, my name is Jim DeGraw, and I'm a recovering people pleaser. I was like, oh, that's him. I know him. And then I got really jazzed up because as he began to walk through this portion of scripture, he began to talk about how uh legalism in the church will always bring a person face to face with their own wretchedness, but they will continue in legalism because they think someday they will be good enough because of the law. They, they think it'll be good enough because of the law, and then they will either come to a place where they deny their wretchedness. They will no longer say, look at how sinful I am, or on the flip side, which in my opinion is a lot worse, they become self-righteous like the Pharisee. They become self-righteous like the Pharisee. I read a book recently said, uh, that said, if, if you call people Pharisee, you're probably the Pharisee yourself, and I was like, Duh, I'm not reading this book and put that down. Right, but that, that's the very thought. You become either uh, one who no longer sees yourself as sinful, uh, which is still pretty close to the Pharisee because the Pharisee said, I'm, I'm good enough to go to heaven because I kept the law, um, or, or you no longer think that you need to change. You become the one that puffs the chest, looks down the nose at the one who still struggles. The one who um, can't seem to catch a break. Go ahead and go ahead. He had his hand up already and I I wasn't blowing you off. I could see out of the corner of my eye. Sunday night church. uh, We're bringing it back. Sure. Agreed. That's good. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. God-based. Yeah. He made that statement, wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me? Like, who can? I, I almost wonder how oftentimes we don't come to a place of desperation in, in which Paul found himself. I mean, Paul had to come to a place where he was like, I, I don't know who's going to be able to save me. Um, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a dirtbag and I need somebody to rescue me. Like, I'm in the pits here, and I, I think that, that we have to come to a place of desperation in order to find victory. Well, we have to come to a place where, where it's the end of me, and it's the end of everything that I thought could save me. And, and, and the desire has to go beyond just a vague hope of getting better. Like, we have to cry out against ourselves and cry out to God in desperation for that rescue. I mean, who will deliver me? I mean, I imagine Paul like almost, almost screaming um, at the top of his lungs. Like, who, who's, and I'm not going to do it because I just started to get my voice back. But I, I imagine Paul like yelling out asking who, who's going to deliver him, and, and Paul's perspective finally turned to something actually outside of himself, or really towards someone outside of himself. And, and I want you to know that Paul, in this chapter alone, referred to himself more than 40 times he was inward-focused Inward, he, it was something about me or I or myself. I mean, in the pit of his unsuccessful struggle with obedience, Paul became entirely self-focused and self-obsessed. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I can't, I can't, I can't. I did this. It didn't work. It was me. And then that is the place Uh, of any believer that's living under the law who looks to self and looks to personal performance rather than looking to Jesus first. Like the words, who will deliver me? To me, they show that Paul has given up on himself completely. I've given up on me, and he asks who's gonna deliver me instead of saying how will I deliver myself? So who's gonna deliver me from this body of death? Who is it? And so Paul describes a, a reference to the, the customs of the ancient tyrants when you know, they, they wished to put men to the most fearful punishment and to shackle, when men were, were captured and they were taken to be put to death, before they were put to death, uh, the tyrants would shackle a dead body to the living body. They would place a dead body strapped to your back or to your side, and you would not be able to leave it. So there would be a living man and a dead man shackled together. And they were so closely strapped in that day and age, and it was rotting, and it would be putrid in smell. And the body, he had to drag around with him every single way. The the prisoner went, the dead body was attached to him. And this is just what the, the Christian has to do. He has within him new life. But he has living... Yeah, go ahead. So in Paul's day and age, when, he, when he's referencing, like, who's going to deliver me from this body of death, he, it's because of, of what he had personally seen in that day. And Nero probably would have been the top um, of the line to pr- probably handle those types of, of um, incidences. Uh, but you're talking anybody pre-Nero... I mean, Nero was reigning when Paul uh, was a Christian. Um, And it was, I mean, Nero was the one who put Paul to death. So um, uh, the Holy Spirit has been put within, within the believer, but he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this body of death. And that's what Paul is saying. It's almost loathsome or it's hideous or abominable to his new life. It's like a dead carcass would be to a living man is what Paul is saying. And so Paul longed to be free from the wretched body of death that was clinging to him. So look at this last verse and then we're going to close it up for the night. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And So Paul finally looks outside of himself and unto Jesus, and as soon as he looked to Jesus, he had something to thank God for, and he thanks God for Jesus Christ. Immediately, Paul sees Jesus standing between him and God, bridging the gap. And providing a way, and Paul has put Jesus in his rightful place as Lord, as master of his life. And so then, Paul says, with my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he's acknowledging one last time the state of his struggle. But thanks be to God, because I have found victory through Jesus Christ." And so Paul doesn't pretend that looking to Jesus took away the struggle. Jesus works through us, not instead of us, in our battle against sin. I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus works through us, not instead of us, in the battle against sin. Meaning the the truth will always remain that there is victory in the power of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Jesus didn't come and die just to give us more and better rules. He came so that we could have a victorious life. And the message of the gospel is that there is victory over sin, and there's victory over hate, and there's victory over death, and there's victory over all evil when we surrender our lives to Christ and we let him live out victory through us. You know, Paul... Paul showed us at the very end, though, that the law was glorious and it was good. Though it can't save us, we still need a Savior. You know, Paul never found peace outside um, of himself until he looked beyond the law to Jesus Christ. The, The believer oftentimes thinks that the problem was that we didn't know what to do to save ourselves. But the law came as a teacher, and it taught us what to do, but it still couldn't save us. And so we didn't need the teacher, we needed the Savior. Give me just one second so I can finish my thought. You know, we thought the problem was that we weren't motivated enough, but the law came in like a coach and encouraged us to do what we needed to do, and we still couldn't save ourselves. Why? Because we didn't need a coach, we needed a Savior. We thought the problem was that we didn't know ourselves well enough, but the law came in, and like a wonderful doctor, perfectly diagnosed the sin problem in your life by using the law, but the law couldn't heal you. Why? Because you didn't need a doctor. You didn't need a teacher. You didn't need a coach. You needed a savior. You needed a savior. And so I, I want go ahead and say what you're going to say, because I have two questions I really want us to kind of think on. We're not going to answer out loud. Um, I want you guys to think on it, and we're going to start next week by talking briefly about these two questions in just a moment. So yeah, go ahead. sure yeah Yeah. I mean our it goes back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago um, our need for the gospel of grace every moment of every day every moment of every day and like Paul said at the start of chapter 6 should I continue in my sin lest grace would abound no Absolutely not. So the, the more that we press in to God, well, what comes out of us? I, I think back oftentimes to John chapter 15. Those who abide in the vine produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. So the more that we press in to our relationship with God, the more godliness in character and in fruit will come out of us why do you think jesus said they will know you are my disciples by your fruit by your fruit they will know i've said this to you guys before and it will always be something that will be upon my lips because it's so true my pastor when i was a child used to say time truth and fruit will never never lie time spent in the word of god produces godly fruit and that godly fruit never ever ever lies Time, truth, and fruit never, never lie. And so I have these two questions that I want you guys to write down to think on, and next week we're going to start off by answering them. What convicts you or challenges you in chapter 7? And then what in chapter 7 brings you comfort? What challenges or convicts you, and then what brings you comfort? I'll leave it up on the screen for those of you who are writing it down. Next week we're going to kick off chapter 8, but I want to answer these two questions before, uh, before we get there.